good. Let's pray. Lord, this is an intense message. And um, I know that the enemy doesn't want this truth to get out. But we ask, Lord, that you would loosen my lips, that it would get out, Lord, that you would bind the evil one, and that we would live in freedom, Father. Let your words flow for me in Jesus' name. Amen. So, summer of 1997, a very memorable summer for me. I graduated from college that year. I met my beautiful wife that same summer. Uh, my brother and I traveled across the country from Los Angeles to New York and back. It was a fun time. I also got to go to Venezuela that summer. And I got to go on a mission trip to uh, the best place to describe it. Look, this is it here. Three degrees north of the equator, off the Padamo River, a tributary off the Orinoco River. Uh, basically the Amazon jungle of Venezuela in the southern part. I don't think you could find it on a map if you really looked for it. You could find the rivers, but not the towns. Uh, we were there to support uh, a missionary. If you could flip to the next picture there. His name is Joe Dawson. Well, actually, this is how we got in there. So we got in there by uh, airplane, a 100-yard strip in the middle of the jungle was where we landed and got out of the airplane. A couple of airplanes, there was about a dozen of us, led by a youth with a mission director, a guy named Todd Doctor. We were supporting this family here. Joe is the older gentleman that you see on the right, Joe Dawson. He goes by Pepe to the natives there. He had been there since the 1950s, ministering to these people. The guy to his lower right, also smiling in the bottom right picture, is Gary. That's one of his sons, who's basically grown up in the jungle. He's got a brother, Mike, who's written some books about what it's like to grow up with the Yanomamo people. This book here, Spirit of the Rainforest, is one that I, we were required to read it before going on this mission trip because we were going to encounter some pretty intense stuff. Can you go back one? This, oh, yeah, there it is right there. Leave it there. So that guy's name is Baptista. He also goes by Shoefoot, and that's what he's referenced as in this book that we read. He was the, the chief of the village, an ex-shaman. By the time that I got the chance to meet him, uh, he had been a Christian for about 10 or 15 years or so, and his testimony is phenomenal. So being a shaman, he had dabbled in, not dabbled, he had lived with spirits. He had taken this drug called ebing, it's an hallucinogenic, that would uh, allow him to get into the spirit world, if you will, with the spirits that he communed with. And his story, his testimony of how he broke free from that is in this book. I'm going to read a portion of it to you. Very intense. So by the way, this is going to be an intense message today, if you haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> this week has been an intense one for me. So uh, this is a PG-13 message, so just be aware. <laughs> so Pepe, Joe, that you just saw his picture. After Pepe finished, Shoefoot had prayed. He wasn't really sure what he'd said, what it meant, something about following the new ways of the Great Spirit. And then he left Pepe's leaf house and walked out into the jungle to be alone. He remembered it like yesterday. A long way from the village, Shoefoot had left the trail so he couldn't be followed. He sat on a cushion of jungle leaves, leaned back against the huge trunk of a hardwood, and looked up at the roof of foliage over his head. He had talked to, to this new spirit, saying things he could never say with Pepe listening. Pepe couldn't understand what we shamans knew. I can't throw these spirits of mine away, Shoefoot had said to God. They will kill me before they will ever leave. I'll let you take them away if you can, but I don't know why you would. You're an unfriendly spirit, the enemy spirit. That's what his spirits had been telling him. If you have noticed me or care about me, then you know I've always needed another spirit. My own spirits have told me that. 
If you are the spirit I need, then you'll have to get rid of the others, but I can't throw them away. Shufoot never again took Ebin, that hallucinogenic drug, after that and never spoke to his spirits. He just waited for them to try to kill him. And a few days later, it happened, but not in what he, the way he expected. He had been lying in his hammock, almost asleep, when Omawa himself, the leader of the spirits, had come to him from deep in the jungle. As he came, he swooped his hand down into the jungle and gathered from it all the sweetest smells of the world. His beauty, his power, his sweet smell were so wonderful that Shufoot knew right away that he could never resist him. Isn't that the way the devil comes at us sometimes? Shufoot's body was filled with excitement. He was important enough to be visited by Omawa himself. Omawa had scooped Shufoot up from his hammock and they began to dance across the jungle. He knew that Omawa would take him back to his old spirits, but it was a moment that he couldn't resist. Just as they had been about to dance forever out into the jungle, they were suddenly hit with a white light, as bright as many suns, more dazzling than anything Shufoot had ever seen. It was like the sharpest flame of lightning, but it didn't stop. The bright light stayed there, and the warmth from it filled Shufoot with a new feeling he had never felt, a feeling of safety. It felt so good. Just when the light appeared, a huge voice had said, You can't have him. He's mine. And Omawa ran in terror. Across the top of the jungle, he ran until he was out of sight. It's him, Shufoot thought. And when he heard the voice, It's Yaipata, the great spirit. He's not the enemy. He heard me when I asked him to chase my spirits away. He must be friendly to me after all. The light, the warmth, the safety, the care of the most powerful spirit, it was all too good for Shufoot to hold in one moment. Pretty intense. So that was his testimony. And I could probably spend the whole afternoon telling you stories about things that he'd seen in the spirit world from his dark perspective, things that he had seen in the United States when he traveled here with, with uh, Gary. Pretty intense. But we're going to focus on some other things this morning. So I've entitled this message, Jesus Brings Freedom. The key idea here is that Jesus sets us free and his kingdom rules over all. He came that we may have life Life abundant. He sets us free and establishes his kingdom. So two weeks ago, Ryan gave an awesome message about Jesus calming the storm. Jesus is basically ruler over nature. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to check it out. It was really good. So today we pick up where Ryan left off, Mark 5, 1 through 20, which we read earlier. When we last saw the disciples, they were freaked out, right? Jesus had calmed the storm, and they thought they were going to die, and... They cried out to Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus responded by calming the storm and then rebuking them for their lack of faith. So after that episode, they landed on the Sea of Galilee. So it's still dark in the region of the Gerasenes. So on the eastern, southeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, they land. It's still before dawn, still dark. A day or two after the Pharisees had accused Jesus of using Satan's power to perform miracles. So that, that just happened a couple chapters previous in Mark. And Jesus responded to them by warning the Pharisees, hey, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You're treading on dangerous ground here. And then he talked about binding the strong man so that you could rob his house. So you had to first subdue that man before you could do anything to the house, right? And we saw Jesus demonstrate that in nature, and now he was about to demonstrate it in the spirit world. He was going to give the disciples an object lesson on this. So they land on the shore. It's sometime in the night, sometime before dawn. Pretty creepy. So these two demon-possessed men come out in the dark, out of the tombs. The picture that I get here is, if you can put the, the next picture up, is D-Day. 
So this region was known to be one where there was heathens. There was believed to be some apostate Jews on this side of the Galilee Sea, people that didn't keep God's covenant, people that were doing their own thing. And so this is Jesus, one of Jesus' first forays into the Gentile land. He's about to set foot on enemy territory, just like these men were here during World War II on the beaches of Normandy. So get that picture in your mind. It's a battle. And Jesus is about to go into battle here, spiritually speaking. And to some extent, physically even. Because these guys were violent, weren't they? They were cutting themselves. They were breaking chains. Nobody could bind them. Something that, uh, that I came across there, I don't want any, anybody to get stumbled by it, is in the book of Matthew, it talks about two men, and then in Mark, it only focuses on one. And so all, most Bible scholars believe that, uh, that there were indeed two men, but Mark and Luke chose to focus on just the one, the one that was fiercer of the two. So here's this man who's full of demonic spirits, who's oppressed, who's basically at the bottom of, of the pit. He's living in the tombs. He's cast out from society. And he sees Jesus from a distance, and he runs and falls on his knees in front of him. So interesting how, despite this demonic influence and this existence in the tombs, there's still a spark of hope there, I believe. Maybe this Jesus guy can do something. So this brings me to my first point here. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there's hope in Jesus. As long as you're alive, as long as you can speak out with your tongue, there's hope. There's life. So this guy, he's a demonized man, influenced by demons, and there's still a spark of hope. The thought that Jesus can do something, hopefully. There's a duality that goes on here when you talk about spiritual oppression. He's not completely given over to these guys. There's still a spark of his will, but there's also this influence, right, that's tormenting him. Spirits that promise one thing but deliver another, like we saw in that story, and we'll hear another story similar to that. It's interesting to note that the spirits didn't run from Jesus, did they? They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They couldn't run away. They ran towards Jesus rather than trying to escape. And so Jesus is calm. He's got a commanding presence. He's the son of the most high God. And they cry out to him, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And I, I believe that duality is going on there. Because just like that shaman was lied to by his spirits that Jesus doesn't love him, this guy was, he was definitely lied to. But that's the enemy. Jesus is the enemy. And in a way, he was to the demons. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons recognize him for who he is. That name, Most High God, in Hebrew is El Elyon. It's the name of God known in that region of the world to the Canaanites. It's the same reference that's used in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is called Priest of the Most High God, Priest of El Elyon. So these spirits knew of El Elyon and his son Jesus, these are the same demons that revolted against God back at the beginning of the world. They renounced their allegiance to him during their rebellion with Satan. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. But Jesus had something to do with them. There's a commentary that I read as I was studying this from uh, John Gill, and I want to read the quote to you because it's, it's pretty powerful. It says, Christ came to destroy them, the demons, and their works, so that indeed they had nothing to do with him as a savior, though he had something to do with them as a judge, which they dreaded. However, they acknowledge him to be the son of the Most High God. They know and confess him, and more than some that call themselves Christians. And yet, they had nothing to do with him. 
Men may know much of Christ notionally, may know and confess him to be God, to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, and yet have no more to do with him or have no more interest in him than the devils themselves. James 2.19 sums it up this way. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's sobering to me. So who do you say he is? That's an important question, but an even more important question is, do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? Does he know you? Because you see, we're not really much different than that demoniac man. Before we come to Christ, we're lost in our sins, and the spirit that lives inside of us is an unclean spirit, is it not? Just like that man. And apart from Christ, a man's soul is unclean. The spirit is defiled with sin, and you can't cleanse yourself from that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. So really, that man was no worse off than we were. It's a picture of the gospel, how God steps in, pulls us out from the tombs, frees us, and gives us new life. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there's an opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, and freedom. Jesus is the bondage breaker. It's for freedom that he sets us free. The demons, on the other hand, they want nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, they know of their impending fate. They're subjected to doom. They know that they're going to end up in the abyss someday. So they seek to steal, kill, destroy as many as possible before that time. Like I said, they had no interest in him as a savior, but he certainly is their judge, and they appeal to him as such. Have mercy. Send us to the pigs. Which brings me to my second point. You have two options to know Jesus. You can either know him as savior or Lord, or you can know him as judge. That's your choice. Which would you prefer? Those are your options. Life or death. For you old folks out here, in the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Some of, the, some of the kids are like, who's Bob Dylan? <laughs> Go Google him. One of, the, one of the verses from his song. You might be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the choice you have in front of you. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20 says it a little more eloquently, a little more spiritually, but it's the same message. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. Whatever you obey, whether it's your flesh, the world, the devil, or whether you obey the Lord, whatever you choose to obey, that's what's going to own you. Apart from Christ, we will choose death every time because we're not able to overcome the lies of the enemy, the temptation of the flesh. But in Christ, we're given mercy, a pardon for punishment. And we're given grace, the ability to have life filled with peace and joy. Again, there's two choices, life abundant or death. There's no in between. The wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. This is evident in the pigs. We see it. 
What happens when the demons enters the pigs? They die. Another picture of God's mercy, because the legions of demons that we'll talk about here in a minute, when they were in the men or the man, they only cut themselves. They oppressed them, but they didn't die. As soon as they went into the pigs, however, their true nature was demonstrated. Death. Let me back up a little bit here. So Jesus calls out to both the man and the demons, what is your name? Pay attention to this, because this is, this is a big one. I think this is the reason here, this point, that this third point is the reason why I've felt such burden and oppression this, uh, this week. Satan's going to try to steal your identity. Christ gives you true identity. So last week, Pastor Brad talked about uh, Jesus speaking Mary's name. You guys remember that? Speaking Mary's name in the garden. And he talked about how powerful it is when Jesus calls you by name. Has he asked you that question? What is your name? Or even better, has he called you by name? Uh, back in September, I went to uh, a men's retreat. Um, it was uh, a John Eldridge type retreat put on by the base, uh, a boot camp for men. And we talked about this idea of identity and what it means to men. And during one of the prayer time sessions afterwards, I was praying and I was asking the Lord, the thing that we were supposed to, to find out from the Lord is what, what name does he have for you? What is the name that he has have for you? And so I asked God, what's the name that you have for me? And I heard him clearly tell me, Mighty One, which was really impactful to me because that's what my name means. Eric means Mighty One. And so when I heard that, it's like, I just started crying. It's like, wow, the, the Lord spoke my name. And it was really impactful to me to show that he, he was approving of the way that I was seeking after him. And I don't share that story to brag or anything. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you that when Jesus speaks your name, or when he asks you, what is your name? That's a serious moment. That's a Kairos moment. Why is that? Can you throw up that slide there? So we've talked about uh, the covenant and kingdom before, right? We've talked about this. Our identity comes from the Father. So on the left side there, we gain our identity from the Father. We're sons of the living God once we are found in Christ. We get our authority from him as king. So those two things are tied together, identity and authority. It comes from the Father. It comes from our King. And then once we have that identity and that authority, we can push out in power to obey His commands. And so where does the enemy strike us? Identity. If he can rob you of that identity, then he renders you powerless because you're not focused on your authority, you're not moving out in power, and you don't have the power to obey. So that identity is essential. There's some statistics here that are really sobering from this book, uh, this other book that I've got up here. The Bondage Breaker, written in the 90s as well, showing my age. Neil T. Anderson. He's got some, some statistics here that are very sobering. He says, no more than 15% of the evangelical Christian community is completely free of Satan's bondage. So this guy's a counselor, so he's spent his life. He knows what he's talking about here. He says, the, the people that are consistently living a spirit-filled life and bearing fruit is probably about 15%. The other 85% are struggling along fruitlessly at one of at least three levels of spiritual conflict. So where do you fall in this category here? Hopefully you don't, but 85%, that's a big number. The normal Christian life on the outside, but wrestling with the steady barrage of sinful thoughts on the inside. So lust, envy, greed, hatred, apathy, selfish ambition, fill in the blank. So they think the problem is their own, and so they condemn themselves. They think, man, I'm, I'm a dirtbag. I don't have what it takes. And that's a lie from the enemy. Because Jesus has already paid the price. You're already free in him. And when you believe that lie, you're rendered ineffective. It goes back to that identity. 
Then there's those who sense that something's amiss, but they're scared to address it. They know that something's not right. They're getting that barrage of sinful thoughts. They know it's not exactly from them, but they're afraid to go there. They're afraid of the spiritual warfare. They're afraid to engage with the enemy. And so they still are rendered ineffective. And then there's the 5%, the ones who actually believe the lies of the evil one, and they lose control, and they're subject to severe oppression, approaching what we see in the demoniac story. Severe manifestations of demonic influence. So family, we're at war. This is a daily struggle. I think every, yeah, every single person in this room, myself included, wrestles with thoughts from the enemy. Am I right? Yeah. It's a daily struggle. It's an insurgency. It's a guerrilla warfare where the enemy subtly lies to inflict damage on us, rob us of our identity. We need to recognize it and seek the truth. The truth will set you free. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We need to listen to him, not the father of lies. The enemy uses the same basic tactics against every believer. You can throw up the next one. These are the tactics he uses. So this is the enemy's game plan right here. He distorts the truth with subtle lies. He accuses us, bringing condemnation, guilt, and shame. So if you're feeling those emotions of condemnation, guilt, and shame, those are not from God. And then he gets you to agree to them by getting you to believe it and confess, confess it with your mouth that those things are truth. So subtly, when you make agreements, when you say things like, nobody ever loves me, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not strong enough, I don't have what it takes. If you say those things with your mouth and you start to believe them, you're already on step three. He's distorted the truth, he's accused you, he's brought guilt and shame, and he's gotten you to believe it and agree to it. And your identity is stolen and you're rendered ineffective. But there's freedom in Jesus. Take every thought captive for Christ. This is a battle that I've been really raging this week as I've been studying this. It's like Greg says, you know, you, you prepare for these messages and you, you think it's for the church. It's not. It's for, it's for yourself. <laughs> every thought captive for Christ. I'd be sitting at my desk at work this week working on performance reports for the guys that I supervise and a random thought would come in that I know is not from God, some lustful thought, something just out of left field, like, where did that come from? I know exactly where that came from, from the pit of hell. <laughs> Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. This is the purpose of worship. Something that really inspired me this week is this idea of worship. Did you realize that the, the reason that we get to worship God is so that we can keep our mind focused on him when we're glorifying God, when we have our eyes closed, freeing us from distraction, that's the whole reason why we close our eyes when we pray, right? So that we're not distracted. But you can pray with your eyes open too. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say it one way or the other. So the reason that we worship is so that we got our eyes focused on God when we're focused on his glory, his goodness, his truth. Everything else just falls away, especially the lies of the enemy. He's the answer. He's the cure. He's the plan. He's not the backup plan. He's the only plan. So Jesus stood there before the man afflicted by demonic powers, addressed the demons, and cast them out. But a discussion ensues between Legion and Jesus. They feared, like we said before, that the final judgment was on them, and they were going to get sent to the abyss. So they pleaded with Jesus to let them go to the pigs on the hill. They asked for mercy. How ironic, right? The ones that show no mercy to others were asking for mercy from Jesus. Which brings me to my fourth point. We're almost there. As you gain freedom, you're going to face opposition still. 
The enemy is not going to give up without a fight. Why did the demons resist Jesus and not want to leave the region? Like I said, it's believed that this was a heathen area. Apostate Jews were living there, hence the keeping of the swine, which is contrary to Mosaic law. They didn't view themselves as God's people, and so the demons felt at home. This was their territory. They had affinity for it. They could influence and manifest themselves in an extreme way, like through this guy. Where there's godlessness, there's going to be demonic influence, and you'll see it. Depression, suicide, murder, drug addiction, sexual abuse, slavery. You got two choices, right? Life or death. When you have godlessness, there's going to be death. So Jesus sets this guy free, and then the herdsmen run into town, and by early morning, the whole town shows up. What's going on? What happened to all these pigs? And immediately, you see fear. You'd think they'd be upset, right? You'd think they'd be angry. But instead, it was fear. Why is that? So they venerated Jesus' power, as the world does. There's no denying that the pigs were, were killed. But they didn't appreciate the fact that this guy was now free. He was clothed and in his right mind. They were more worried about the pigs. And I don't think it was that they were worried about the pigs. There's some uh, Bible scholars out there who talk about them being worried about further loss of property. And I think it was more they were concerned about being subjected to Christ's power and being intimidated by that. Because back then, the Romans were in power, right? And power meant oppression. They had a victim mentality. So if somebody demonstrated power, it meant the thumb. And I think that's the way they viewed Jesus. Is here's a guy that we don't understand. We don't want him here, which is why they asked him to leave. And ironic how the very thing that the demons wanted came to pass at the request of the people. There's a principle there. So Jesus has authority, commands the spirits to leave. They leave the man, but he pleads with human hearts. Right? So he leaves. He acquiesces to their requests and he leaves. But he leaves behind this guy who it's obvious that he's free and there's no denying his testimony. So that's the way Jesus works. He's a gentleman. He leaves, but he's leaving evidence of his power and of his love. And then the man wants to remain in the up with Jesus. He's been freed. He wants to stay in communion with him. And Christ says, nope, you need to go to your friends, your family. And then he goes out into the local area, to the 10 cities, the Decapolis, on that eastern part of the Galilee Sea. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He frees us. We go to our family and friends, tell them about what God's done for us, and then we go out into the world. From the overflow of what Jesus does, and this brings me to my final point, in our freedom, Christ sends us out to the world. From the overflow of what Jesus did, how he was so radically changed, how he so immensely was impacted by Christ, he couldn't but help but share it. Let me read one final story to you. Here, I'll finish with this. So, this book is written from the point of view of a man named Jungleman, who was Shufut's shaman mentor. And so you hear about Shufut's conversion, and then sometime later, Jungleman, his mentor, comes to Christ as well. And his story is even crazier than Shufut's story. So, Jungle Man finally decides he's had enough of his evil spirits. They've been lying to him the whole time. And he finally decides he's going to give his life over to Yaipada, is their, their word for God. 
He says, when I woke up, I was lying on the ground. My spirits pounded on my chest. This is what happened to a shaman when they came to the end of their life, when they were no longer useful. Their spirits would turn on them and kill them, and they all knew it. I jumped up and ran through the jungle like I have never run. I came to a clearing and tripped and fell to the jungle floor. Again, they began to pound on my chest. My breath left me, but I felt no pain. I lay in the long grass and watched one fist after another hit my chest with great force, but I couldn't feel anything. Even though I knew I should expect it, I couldn't believe that my closest friends in all the world were doing this to me. Just before they killed me, a bright light came. It was so bright that I couldn't see anything, and there was something very warm like I have never felt. A creature stood over me, more dazzling than anyone could ever think. As soon as I left, as soon as I left him, I knew who he was. He was the one we have always called Yaiwana Nabalaiwa, the unfriendly spirit, the enemy spirit. He was the same one we and all our spirits have hated, the one I've always been afraid of. He was the same spirit that my follower Shufoot had taken when he threw away the spirits I found for him. All those times he had angered me with stories about a great spirit who became a man and made a trail to his land, Jesus. I knew it was that spirit. I have never seen such beautiful light. I lay on the ground in the cloud of brightness and I saw my whole life and I saw how completely tricked I had been. I remembered all the things that my spirits had told me. Now suddenly in this bright light, I saw that they were all lies. Everything they had said was a lie and such clever lies too. All our revenge, every habit, our chest pounding, all of it was to make us unhappy. I have been used by my spirits for their pleasure. How tricked I was. I've run from this creature of beauty all my life, I thought. No wonder I have nothing. All of it happened in the snap of a bowstring. God reached out and grabbed me. I felt so safe. That's why it doesn't hurt, I thought. He stood over me, pulled me away from my spirits, and said to me, Don't worry. You'll be all right. I'm here to protect you. Then with a big voice, the spirit said to my spirits, Leave him alone. He's mine. They scampered in every direction like a herd of terrified hogs. And he was right. I was his. At that moment, I felt safer than ever in my life. I watched my spirits running so far away from me. When I saw their terror, all the fear of my whole life just ran away with them. Just when I needed another spirit most, Shufoot's spirit suddenly decided to free me from my spirits. That's how that man was saved. Can you imagine that testimony going around the Decapolis? It's very similar to what Jesus did for the demoniac man. It says that they marveled in the region. But guess what? Marveling is not enough. To believe is not enough. The demons do that. Even to obey is not enough. When commanded by Jesus, even the demons have to obey. When Jesus calls us into relationship with him to abide, to enjoy, then obey from our identity, that's the key to know Jesus. Do you know him like that? Are you living in freedom like that? Let's pray. Lord, heavy, intense word. I know it's taken me a, a whole week to soak it in. And so I know that this, this word is going to be dwelled upon in more than just this 30 minutes, Lord. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would water it, that you would bring enlightenment and freedom where it needs to happen, Lord, that you would expose the lies of the enemy to those who've been lied to their whole lives by familiar spirits. Lord, we ask for freedom. It is for freedom that you have set us free. You've already done the work on the cross, Lord. 
So I ask that you just continue the work that you've started. You who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, it says in your word. And we claim that promise in the name of Jesus. Amen.